All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. So yeah, you might know Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation. That was the role that really broke him into the mainstream. Did you know he was 47 when he got that part? Patrick has a lot to say in his new memoir about getting his biggest break later in life and about the years on stage in England that led to it. Patrick Stewart is coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I love this story. When Patrick Stewart was first cast as Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation, there's an article in the Los Angeles Times about it because it's the reboot of, of Star Trek. And they refer to Patrick Stewart as unknown British Shakespearean actor. Unknown British Shakespearean actor. Isn't that great? I mean, it didn't take him long to become a household name. Uh, Patrick played Picard for seven seasons on Star Trek The Next Generation, four movies. Uh, he was in the Picard TV series. He played Charles Xavier in the X-Men film franchise. But yeah, before that, Patrick Stewart was part of the UK theater scene. I wouldn't say unknown. He was a prominent member of the Royal Shakespeare Company for years. Patrick's just released a memoir. It's called Making It So. It's all about his life as an actor. So we got together over Zoom and we talked about the early days. We talked about the time he was an understudy and the lead actor didn't show up. And you can kind of guess how that changed his life. And moving from theater in the UK to the enterprise in America. Here's my conversation with Patrick Stewart. How are you? Tom, hello. I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. I loved that you were referred to as unknown British Shakespearean <laughs> actor. Yes, it, it was somewhat discouraging to me at the time because I'd done no series television, certainly not in Hollywood, nothing. This was my first time. But the whole feeling about it changed when the next morning I arrived at my trailer, which was a very modest trailer, not a first-class leading actor trailer that we eventually had. And pinned to the door of my trailer, it said in large letters, beware, unknown British Shakespearean actor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it didn't take me long to work out that this was the fun and games of Brent Spiner, who, of course, played Data, the android. I loved I love that, that that story so much. And I love so many of the stories in the book. I want to get through some of them, and I want to talk a little bit about your own journey as an actor. But strangely enough, I want to start with some music. I want to play some music for you. Just t- t- take a listen to this. That is the great Roy Rogers with I'm an Old Callahan from the Rio Grande. Why are we playing that for you? Because I have recorded that number myself. (laughs) And um, my wife is a a singer, a wonderful singer. 
And uh, the manager and one member of her band that she worked with one day heard me singing some Western song. And he said, hang on a minute. How the hell do you know that? And I said, oh, when I was a kid, I, I loved Westerns. They were my ultimate escapism. And, and uh, so I learned the songs and I would just sing them to myself. You know, music ha has been a quiet part of my life, all my life. I, I don't write about this in the memoir. I don't think that I do. But it faded. It didn't have the sticking power that Shakespeare had or Ibsen or any of those dramatists. But every now and again, something drifts into my head and, and I start singing it. It happened only two days ago. And I had not thought of this song for decades, but all of a sudden it was there. And I, I remembered it all. What song? And, um, ah, well, you see now, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the challenge. Um, I, I will now erase my attempt to recall it, and we'll talk about something else, and then all of a sudden I'll be singing to you. Um, the, the, what I found interesting about you, again, you singing that song and listening to cowboy songs a lot as a kid is that I love the way you write in the book about some of the early, like just when you were, before you were an actor, when you were just a child, about some of the, the art and music and movies that had an impact on you. I mean, you, you grew up in, in West Yorkshire. Your mom was taking you to movies. What, what do you remember about those trips? What movies were you going to see? The first movie we saw was something that we had been misled about. We thought we were going to see a, a child's movie, a, 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 you know, a cartoon or something like that. It was at our local cinema, and I think I, think I was five or six years old. Um, well, it started, first of all, I, I was horrified that it wasn't in color because I'd fallen in love with Technicolor, which was still pretty new in those days. And there were still films being turned out that were black and white. And this was one of them. And oh, I was instantly disappointed. But then I became aware that I didn't really understand what was going on in the film. And my mother suddenly grabbed my arm when there was a scene happening between a man and a woman and said, come on, love, this is not for us, and whisked me out. <laughs> we, we got into the, oh, hang on. I've got a mosquito in front of me, and I've been bitten once already this morning. Not here, outside in my garden. Right, okay, good. Get, get rid of one that. One of them has got in. It's gone. Okay, good. Um, I think it was the cowboy music that must have attracted it to come in and fly around here. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you would think that there's an easy uh, trend then from um, seeing those movies as a kid to wanting to become an actor, but I love the way you kind of very slowly in the book talk about the, the various things that, that uh, brought you to acting. And, and I kind of want to go through them. One was, and I, I love any story about like a teacher being a formative experience on your life. I come from a family of teachers, so I, I kind of love that kind of thing. Uh, Mr. Dormand, right? Who was he and why was he so important to you? Sir Cecil Dormand. I mean, he wasn't called Sir Cecil Dormand, um, but I called him Sir all the time. He was 
in my second year at secondary modern school, he became my English teacher and my form master. So we saw a lot of him. He had a great sense of humor. He was very familiar, very chatty, but also quite disciplined. Um, he would he would throw chalk at us if if it looked as though we weren't listening to him. But if you managed to catch the chalk before it hit you, he would applaud. <laughs> and so would the rest of the class. So it was a little unconventional. But yes, he put into our hands a copy of The Merchant of Venice. And he began going around the classroom saying, uh, OK, John, you're here, except Willie, you're so-and-so. And he was casting the, the play. And he got to me, and I was the last, and he said, and Patrick, you're Shylock. Well, it meant nothing to me at all. And it was just the one play in the book. And he said, go to Act 4, Scene 1, which is the great trial scene in that. And um, I was listening to my fellow students struggling with the text because the Merchant is not a simple text mm. all the time. Yeah. And suddenly I saw on the page that the name of the next speaker was Shylock. And it was a, a speech of over 30 lines, which I started on. And most of the words I had to pronounce, I didn't understand. I didn't know what they meant. I'd never encountered language as rich as that before. But something grabbed me. Nay! Take my life and all! Pardon not that! You take my house when you do take the prop that doth sustain my house! You take my life when you do take the means whereby I live! And so I was very quickly head over heels, and then I met a wonderful woman, Ruth Winnowin who was a retired actress, and um, she took me on as a student to study acting with her. Privately, I, I wasn't paying her, but she gave me the education which Cecil Dormand had kicked off about language, how to use it, how to make it also natural, if it, even though it was complicated, poetry. Does that make sense? It makes it makes perfect sense to me, and I want to talk a little bit more about her work in just a second. But I, I, maybe, maybe if I back up a little bit, so that's one of the paths paths to acting. And then there's another one. I just got, I guess I wanted some clarification on. I was really um, moved by the way in the book uh, you're very honest about um, the domestic abuse in in your house, and you tell these really harrowing stories of of you and your brother. You know, standing in, 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 in between your father, you know, he would come home drunk from the pub and you could kind of tell by which song he was singing whether or not, you know, he was going to be violent when he got home. And then after you tell that story, which again is like so, so powerful, you say something like, it's not, it's not hard to see how experiences like that might have turned me into an actor. What, what, what do you mean by that? How do you see the, the connection between those two? Well, um, I wasn't cast in a play or to play a role until Cecil Dorman cast me in a play called The Happiest Days of Your Life, where I was to play a 12-year-old schoolboy called Hopcroft Minor. 
And, and so becoming another character meant that for a, a, a small period of time, I could stop being Patrick Stewart, about for whom I had not too much respect. I mean, in ways that only through analysis over the decades I've come to understand was one of the reasons was that I was blaming myself for the danger that my mother was in. I thought I was responsible for it in some way, which wasn't the truth. My father was sick. He had PTSD. Of course. But that, that didn't exist as a diagnosis in those days. What he was told he had was, um, uh, oh dear, what was the phrase they used to, they used to use? Shell shock, they would call it back. Shell in the shock. Other. Yeah, that's right. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Tom, that's brilliant. <laughs> Listen, would, would you stay, hang around and work with me or whatever? Because No, I'm going to take think... Tom, you saying Tom, that's brilliant to make it my ringtone is what I'm going to do. That's going to be, oh, that's going to be my alarm every morning when, when I wake up. You have my full permission. Okay, I appreciate that. I um, I was just in Yorkshire like uh, last month. I was in Sheffield um, uh, singing with a, a couple of friends of mine there. And they don't sound like you. <laughs> In in Yorkshire, like your your when when I found out you were from Yorkshire, I said that doesn't make much sense to me because their accents are completely different. Patrick Stewart doesn't have the Yorkshire accent to me. But then I, I read in the book that you were encouraged to lose your Yorkshire accent. Is that right? Oh, I was told by Ruth Winnowen that if I didn't lose it, my acting would be very very limited that I had, first of all, to learn RP, received pronunciation, received pronunciation. that's what it was called. Yeah. And that was a standard emphasis and uh, interpretation of words, which was used on the BBC. So news readers, they didn't speak with a, a, a drawling upper class accent, but they spoke with this straightforward sound, which I hope I'm making now. Here is an illustrated summary of the news. It'll be followed by the latest film of events and happenings at home and abroad. But it was a lot to lose because, as I've said, it wasn't just accent, it was dialect. And yeah. I will give you an example. Um, I would go to a friend's house and knock on his door when, when I had some free time. And when he answered the door, I would say to him, Atalekana. You understand? At Atalekana? Atalekana. Atta. Art thou? Because we said thee and thou in my household. Right. Uh, and not because we were religious. That was just what Yorkshire people said. Oh, thee, that's all buggered up. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so and, art, uh, art thou? Atta, art thou, lakin, which is a 15th century, it uh, could be earlier, word for playing. Now, in Shakespeare's time, and I think he might have used this word, Actors were called Lakers. So I was using a word that was hundreds of years old. Atta Lakin, are you playing at out? Atta Lakin. Atta Lakin at. There, you can speak it. Atta Lakin at. Well, I, I can relate to you because I'm I'm from I'm from Newfoundland and in, in the east coast of Canada. And I, I find when I go home or when I have a couple of drinks. 
I can get I can get a little bit like this, like, what are you at? How you doing? Bye. My name's Tom. Yeah, I like getting out. Yeah, I'm having a good time here now with everybody. What are you at? Like, I kind of talk like that. Really? Yeah. A little bit. Like, so when you go home, like, can you still speak? Does your Yorkshire accent ever still come out? I believe that I can, but my family tell me that, no, I can't. It's, they say, don't try to fool us that that's Yorkshire. That's not Yorkshire you're speaking. It's it's faked. Um, but I think I, I speak it very well. I mean, the, the way I talked was mostly like this. It was flat and monos, almost monosyllabic. And there were no fancy words in it either. It was just broad Yorkshire. And... Um, I can still do it. I, apparently, you can. I want to get. I want to get a, a, another story from you here, from some of your early acting days. One of the ones I really, um, one, one of the ones I really loved. It was. This is sort of one of these like life changing moments. It's when you're an understudy in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and that thing that every understudy quietly prays for actually does happen. Uh, the lead doesn't show up and, and you have to step out on stage that night. Would, would you mind telling me that story? I was playing one of the amateur actors in the, uh, what are they called? The, the, they were working men, ordinary working men. But I was understudying a brilliant actor called... Um, uh, Alan something. Alan Howard. Yeah. Thank you. No you problem. see, you're doing it again. <laughs> it's fantastic. Alan Howard... And one night, um, about five minutes after the half an hour had been called, which in England is called 35 minutes before the curtain goes up. Here in America, it's 30. Just remember that. Okay. It's important okay. to know. Okay. And um, he came to my room and said, Patrick, um, Alan hasn't arrived yet. and He's always early. Um, but, you know, everything's fine. D don't worry. And um, after the quarter of an hour had been called, he came again and said, Patrick, he's not here. I think we should start getting you ready. You're going on tonight. And um, so on, on I went. I know a bank where the wild thyme grows. Where I, I love the experience. Yeah, how did it feel? Yes. How did it feel? Well, I'd been doing this play for quite a long time. So I was very familiar with it. And I had pretty well resolved all of the learning that I had to do. And they were a wonderfully supportive cast. We all surged onto the stage together through two doors at the beginning of the play. That was the first time the audience saw us. So we were all gathered quietly behind, behind the set. But that night when I was on, I mean, instead of looking you know, kind of irritatedly at me. Again and again, one after the other came up and hugged me uh -huh. and said, you're going to be great, you're going to be great. And the girls came and kissed me on the cheeks. So I was feeling marvelous. And I went on and I had a wonderful evening, an absolutely wonderful evening. And um, I, I just then knew that it, it wasn't just an actor I wanted to be. I wanted to be a leading actor. And um, th there is something about having a very large role. I know this because I was reading King Lear again the other day, which is a role I've never played. And just for I'm probably fun? Too, probably too Yeah, just for fun. But it's, it's come up from time to How time. How have you never been Lear? 
Uh, I've been in King Lear, but I played the Duke of Cornwall, who dies before the interval. So I used to go home early. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I mean, I have been invited a couple of times to do it, and it hasn't been fitted in with because I, I was doing such a lot of television series work, you know. Um, but so I started reading it and wow, was I hooked almost immediately because there is now, I mean, I'm now so comfortable with Shakespeare that I can feel him inside me. And the complex poetic verse feels to me like ordinary speech. And that's how I feel I can communicate it, you know. What's, what's, what I find interesting is that you, you obviously take it so seriously. But for, uh, one of the things I learned in the book is right before you go on stage or right before the camera rolls, you sort of, like, again, you take it so seriously, but you what, what is it you whisper to yourself, like, I, I don't give a damn before you go on stage? Yeah. Very quietly, but I do say it out loud, but I don't want other people to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course I give a damn. I love my job and I respect the people I'm working with and, and I love them too. But you've got to let go of all the challenges. You can't project yourself into, oh my God, I got this scene coming up that's so difficult. You've got to just go from moment to moment to moment, living alive. And so saying to myself, I don't give a damn. It kind of releases me, and uh, it 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 works. Um, I know we don't have a, a lot of time with you. I want to skip ahead to your your, your days as as Picard. I love the way you write about Star, uh, Star Trek. I love the way you you write about Jean-Luc Picard in, in but, this book. Hold on to Please. that question, Tom. Here's the song. But I want for to go to Widdicombe Fair with Bill Brewer, Chan Stewart, Peter Gurney, Peter Davy, Daniel Winden, Harry Hawke, old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Why should that come into my head? Every word of it, too. Decades after I learned it. Why? What is it that? What sense. is that song? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's called Whittingham Fair. And and I've remembered all the names with Donald Winden, Peter Gurney, Harold Hawke. You know, all of them are still there in my head. The brain is a wonderful creature. Even when you're in your 84th year, it's exciting. It brings you unexpected experiences. I mean, I've, I forget names now. And, you know, that's just... Yeah, yeah, age. But what I must not do is try to remember them, like I did with that verse of song just now. Let it go. And after a few minutes, could be as much as five or ten, it just gently floats across my head. The name I couldn't remember. I don't encourage it. It happens. That's this thing, you know? I love it. That's kind of how I am with crossword puzzle clues. Like, I'll get stuck on one, and then, like, eight hours later, I'll be like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. Melba toast. 
Here's that song Patrick was talking about, uh, Whittacombe Fair, also known as Tam Pierce. we got a version here sung by Burl Ives. Coming up, um, Patrick talks about Star Trek The Next Generation and why he thinks it was a good thing that he got his big break later in life. More Patrick Stewart coming up in just a bit. Tam Pierce, Tam Pierce, lend me your gray mare. All along, down, along, out, along, lee. Us wants to go to Whittacombe Fair. Bill Brewer, Jan Stewart. Peter Gantry, Peter Gurney, Daniel Whitten, Harry Ock, Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. When shall I see again my gray mare? All along, down, along, out, along. That's Whittacombe Fair, also known as Tam Pierce, the traditional folk song my guest Patrick Stewart was trying to remember. More Patrick Stewart coming up in just a bit. Peter Gurney, Daniel Whitten, Harry Ock. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the legendary actor Patrick Stewart. You might know him as this guy. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. That is the opening to the TV show Star Trek The Next Generation. Patrick famously played Captain Jean-Luc Picard on the show. The show ran for seven seasons from the late 80s to the mid-90s. Patrick was 47 when he got that role. And uh, he and I talked about his new memoir. And in it, he, he says that he's happy that his big American break came later in life. I don't know about you, but I love hearing stories about people who get their big break later in life. So I, I asked him a little bit about that. Here's more of my conversation with Patrick Stewart. What strikes me about reading this book is how much I know of you from Picard, how much I learned about you from your, your reading the book and in, in your time in, in, in Shakespearean acting in, in England. You write this thing in the book I wanted to ask you about. Um, you say, because you didn't get the role of Jean-Luc Picard till you were in your mid-40s, and you say, I am glad that my TV and film career didn't take off until I was in my 40s. What do you mean by that? I think by then I was mature enough not to be overwhelmed by the experiences. I mean, I'd done little appearances on television in England, in small roles. I'd actually at one point had quite good roles. But they were the days of multiple cameras. When, when, you, when you film the script at the studios on the set, there would be five, always a minimum of five cameras positioned. And you would run the whole act or the whole scene. And they would be rehearsed so that they could move the cameras 
and not get into a shot, but cover every aspect of the show. Well, that, that's all changed now. And very often now, um, there is only one camera. And of course, those cameras have got smaller and smaller and smaller since electronics have, have improved. And I, I'm not one of those actors that insists you must forget the cameras exist. That doesn't work for me. I like to know where it is because very early on in my career, uh, I, I did half a day's work with the great Rod Steiger. It was actually my first time in front of a camera. Tobin thinks you got something in mind. Tobin wants to know. And he learned about this and something rather unpleasant happened during the morning and and I was involved in it and he, he took sympathy on me and said, uh, come and have lunch in my trailer. And um, actually I don't, wouldn't even try to do his voice or his accent. <laughs> and one of the things he said to me was, Patrick, the most important thing about film work is that a camera photographs thoughts. <laughs> that was awesome to hear him say that. A camera photographs thoughts so it knows what's going on in your internal monologue. Yes. And, yeah. So all you have to do is think and instantly you can be there, except the thinking changes, 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 changes all the time. I'm beginning to sound kind of hysterical, aren't I? That's your fault. <laughs> That's the name of this show. Oh. People don't know that. It's getting hysterical <laughs> with Tom Powers, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you Did you have the sense of like, okay, well, I'm getting this sort of worldwide fame in my 40s. I'm ready for it, like that kind of feeling. I'm not, I'm not in my 20s now. Eventually, yes. I don't think I did at all during the first season of Next Generation. And uh, furthermore, of course, in the last two or three weeks, uh, that was the beginning of the 1988 actor strike. And we were out, and but we just managed to finish the season. And then people said to me, I think it's very unlikely you're going to come back. There won't be any more. I think this is going to be it. Because it went on, I think, for at least two and a half months. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it was over. And uh, we, were, we were back at work. And during that time, I had been able to develop a new approach to the work of cameras. And, I, and my unease and discomfort of when I first walked onto a, a, a camera film studio set began to diminish. And till now, it's almost entirely gone. The cameras are my friends, and I feel comfortable with them, and no matter what they're doing. And, and especially since if I think about what it was that Steiger said to me, it becomes very, very meaningful. And, and then I'm going to shut up. Um, Actors, young actors today, are bringing something new to film work. My wife and I have watched so much TV and films on TV in the last three years. And I became intrigued by a, a different technical approach from young actors. Now, I don't know if they've been taught this, because I haven't discussed it yet with any of them. But I will, because... They, they are speaking more quietly. 
and they're speaking faster. And uh, it was something that it took me a while to get adjusted to, but I enjoy it. And I actually can't wait to get a really nice role with some good long speeches and to experiment with that same approach. Instead of being an actor, you know, speaking out loud like that, I think it's something much simpler, much more human, much more natural. So, you know, 84 and I'm still learning. Well, I was about to say, you know, and I'm, I'm, they're going to kill me if I keep you on the line any longer. The uh, uh, I was wondering a little bit about like, okay, when you write a, a memoir, are you sort of putting a period at the end of your sentence? But then I hear you say, I hope I get a role someday. It, it tells me that you're still constantly looking ahead. Oh, yes. The work that I do has been my life. And it it has harmed me and harmed relationships that I've been in because it took precedent over everything, even my own family. And um, that's not good. Yeah. But I think I'm now at a point where I can do my job and not become lost in it and fixated with it, but remain open and, you know, I mean, there's that story I tell in the memoir, um, which a lot of people have picked up on, when um, I was lecturing the Next Generation company for having too much larking about and, you know, making things up and all of that. and and. Um, one of the actresses said, oh, Patrick, come on. We've got to have some fun sometimes. And I said, we are not here to have fun. Bullshit. <laughs> and, and, and in the year that followed, the second, the second season, when I think we did 26 episodes, I very quickly became the leading disruptor of rehearsals. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd learned what it was that they brought to rehearsals and that it helped them, and it was for me. And, in fact, I do remember saying to the Next Generation cast one day when we were all assembled there, and I said, okay, I've, I've got a, a piece of instruction for you, right? Pay attention. And I said, everybody is responsible for one big laugh every day, right? And I mean that, seriously. There will be punishment, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 been a crazy and, and fabulous life. But my life now is happier than it's ever been. And um I feel I feel very, very lucky and fulfilled. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It was such a pleasure uh, getting to read the book. And uh thank you so much for making the time with us. Lovely to meet you. And you too, Tom. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to the next time. My conversation with Patrick Stewart, his new memoir, Making It So, is out now. I want to play, a, you might have heard a little bit earlier in our conversation, Patrick talking about this song uh, that meant a lot to him growing up, this cowboy song called I'm an Old Cow Hand from the Rio Grande. This is Patrick Stewart and his wife, Sonny Ozell, singing that song. Take a listen. I'm a tender foot, never saw a cow, never roped a steer, cause I don't know how, and I sure ain't fixing to start it now. Yippee-i-o-ki-yay, yee-haw! Yippee-i-o-ki-yay. I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande, and I learned to ride 
before I learn to stand. She rides the range in the Ford V8. I love those old cowboy songs too. Uh, Patrick Stewart and his wife Sunny Ozell with an I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande. Before that, my conversation with the award winning actor, Patrick Stewart. All right, that's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, you're going to hear my conversation with Pedro Almodovar, one of the most acclaimed and influential directors of our time. He'll tell you how growing up under a dictatorship and a strict religious education in Spain helped him make the bold, colorful, provocative, and groundbreaking films he made. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.